Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and today I'm joined by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? Going good, Andrew. Good. We have a couple bits of interesting news that have come up, uh, and then we're going to jump right into our feature. So it's going to be kind of a, a fast-paced episode this week. Uh, why don't we start off with uh, politics? So Caleb Frostman. Why not? Everyone likes it. Right. <laughs> Caleb Frostman. Um, bit of a, a crazy journey that he's been going on. He was just appointed to Tony Evers' cabinet. Yeah, he's uh, the Frostman who was won a special election back in June uh, for to become like Door County's state senator, um, lost in the general election to Andre Jacques in November, and there was some speculation that he might end up getting tapped by Evers for a position at the state, and sure enough, he did. He's the secretary of the Department of Workforce Development, um, kind of a natural fit. He was the Door County Economic Development Corporation's executive director um, before he decided to run for office. Right. So kind of a natural step for him. And um, right now we're looking at uh, Jim Lundstrom is actually digging into this today to find out when the last time a Door County citizen was a member of the governor's cabinet. Uh, I couldn't think of one off the top of my head. But yeah, it could be, it's, it's good to have some local representation in the uh, top office. Right. And, and what a cool story. I mean, just in terms of like Caleb jumping out, putting his foot into the political game, getting elected in the special election, losing the, the second election, the actual election, whatever you yeah. want to call it, uh, but then being swooped up by the incoming governor and put in uh, a, a really cool position, something that, like you said, fits him really well. Yeah, and it's uh, it's been kind of interesting to see some of the comments come out. There's been, with each of Evers' cabinet appointments, there has been the expected criticism from the Republican wing. Um, initially, they criticized him because a lot of his appointments came from Milwaukee and Madison. And now when Caleb got appointed, uh, he's actually gotten a lot of bipartisan uh, support for that appointment. There's been some Economic Development Corporation folks that he's worked with in the past in the Green Bay area who's come out and supported him. And also some uh, Republican senators have come out and, and said they, they like that appointment. So he goes in with a little more support than maybe some of the other folks that have been appointed so far. Right. Uh, cool end cap to the, the beginning leg of Caleb's journey. Um, yeah. Looking forward to seeing what he goes on to do with his new position. Um, it's exciting, like you said, to see somebody from Door County uh, up in the governor's cabinet. Yeah, it always helps to have a, a strong voice. And, you know, you think about the difference of someone like that coming with the background of a rural environment, being in cabinet meetings, being in those discussions and policy discussions versus somebody who comes from maybe a big city or an urban center who, you know, that's a different kind of, kind of economy. So it's not often that I think a rural economy is is somebody representing that ends up being the voice at that level. So right. it could be a well, good, good swing for the state and a good swing for Door County. Right. And I think the two of them are a good fit together in general, too. I mean, a lot of Evers' policies kind of line up with what uh, Caleb Frassman was campaigning on. Yep. And a lot of Caleb's strengths will tie into some of the things that Tony Evers is looking to get done in Wisconsin. So 
should be should be pretty cool. And and like you said, a, a great thing for for Door County too. A lot of Evers um, political movements are going to involve education and um, infrastructure and stuff like that. And those are those are big topics in Door County. Yeah. Uh, moving on, another bit of political news. So we talked we talked a couple of weeks ago about medical marijuana being introduced as uh, a topic of discussion, um, piggybacking off of the uh, the many different county referendums that had put marijuana on the ballot in the in the November election. Now we have recreational marijuana being discussed for a referendum, correct? Yeah, in uh, Sturgeon Bay on, it ended up being Wednesday's meeting. They normally meet on Tuesdays, but with the holiday, they pushed it back a day. Um, they had a proposal, Seth Wieter-Anders has pushed this forward, to put a non-binding referendum on the April ballot um, to gauge citizen interest in approving recreational marijuana use in the city of Sturgeon Bay. Um Door County had discussed similar referendums, uh, eventually voted to put a referendum on the ballot for me- to gauge people's uh, approval levels of medical marijuana. Um, it's kind of interesting, though, a lot of the same uh, discussions that you saw at the county level. You also saw at the Sturgeon Bay's meeting the other night where people, one person said that, uh, warned the council that by approving this, you got to remember what happened in the 60s. Remember those days as it was, as if people were running around psychotic all over because they were on marijuana. Now, if you look back at the 60s, there was a lot of, of uh, pretty crazy things that happened. Um, I don't know that marijuana could be traced back to any of the assassinations or stupid things or people fighting against civil rights. So right. I think um, human logic is maybe a little more psycho than maybe humans were using marijuana. Well, and if, you, if you're trying to go back in time and, and, and look at that kind of stuff, I mean, there was also LSD and cocaine that were getting big in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So to say like the drug problem in the 70s was a marijuana problem, I think, is maybe reaching. What's pretty fascinating is, you know, a a hard law law and order guy like Richard Nixon had actually put a blue ribbon panel together to study what should be done about drugs. And uh, they came back with a recommendation that they should legalize it. And then Nixon said, nope, bury that study. So then we ended up going on a, we launched a war um, against marijuana and a lot of other drugs. And we've been spending a lot of money on it ever since with pretty minimal results, except by a very massive prison population. Right. Um, so it, it is kind of funny to see at these meetings, though, a lot of people, they, they bring up, you know, we just don't have enough research yet, or I haven't seen the studies that show what the results are. And I would say there are probably a few things that have been studied more than drug use and marijuana use. Right. There are some definite, like, things we don't know. We don't, we don't necessarily have procedures in place to easily test for um, being high and driving like we do with drunk driving. And that's, that's an issue. And there are a lot of other issues. But it's kind of funny. That's not exactly what people get um, caught up with in these discussions. It's a lot of we're, we're caught up on like anecdotal comments that people bring up rather than going, well, here's the evidence and, and here's what we think. You know, when Sturgeon Bay discusses this, they didn't have like a doctor in the room or an expert in the room to give them some feedback. It was just some council people talking about it. So right. it's kind of a weird way to come to a decision, but eventually they approved it. Um, I think passed six to one. I think David Ward voted against uh, taking it to referendum. So, um, but the bigger question, and one you had asked me earlier, is like, what is what's the point of, of these things? Right. So why why put something on a referendum that is like, do you like this thing, yes or no, rather than making it a like voting on something? It's just yeah. like, what's your opinion? So what does that what does that do? What does that tell a community? So, right. Like, it can't be approved on a city-by-city, county-by-county level, right? It would have to be a a state measure. Like, California has legalized it. Um, Washington has legalized it. And technically, it's, 
I, I believe if I have this right, I think it's still like federally illegal, but then it's up to the federal government whether they're actually going to like enforce that in those states that um, approve it individually. And so far, the federal government has stayed out. Right. Believe that's how it works. Uh, I'd be happy for someone to tell me different. I'm no expert in this matter. Um, but these these referendums, what they do, and this is what has come up at some of these meetings and discussions too, where people say, you know, and the mayor said this, isn't this a federal law? What do we have to do about it? What does this matter? And there is a little legitimacy to that, but, you know, it's a way for a community to come forward and say, you know, once you have that referendum, if it comes back and it's 70-30 against legalizing it, it's a pretty strong message to your local representative, Joel Kitchens or Andre Jacques or Tony Evers, um, or even like a Mike Gallagher and a Ron Johnson. It's a pretty strong message to say, wow, my constituents are against this, so this is where that tells me how I want to vote. Right. If it comes back the other way, it's a strong message to say, wow, I'm, maybe I need to talk to more constituents. I didn't realize this many people were in favor of this. Um, so, and you really can't do that anecdotally. Like generally, you know, uh, whatever party you are representative, like Caleb Frostman is talking to a lot of people that think like him and you've got to work really hard to get out of that bubble. And so he might never hear the opposite side. And same thing with a, a Joel Kitchens or a um, Andre Jacques. Um, I think Joel seems to do a better job than, than most representatives, representatives in terms of trying to get out and talk to other different people. But a lot of them that I've seen over the years stay in their bubble. Gary Bies was notorious for staying in a very tight bubble of, of thought. And so these referendums serve to give some feedback that they might not otherwise get. Right. And it, it's, it sends a message, like you said, but it sets a precedent, too, of, of letting people know where we stand in certain ways. And correct me if I'm wrong in the number, but I think over the past couple months, there's been something like, what, 20 counties in Wisconsin that have, have done referendums like this? I'm not sure the exact number, but I know in November there were several that passed it. And, uh, right. and then our neighboring state, Michigan, actually passed it statewide. Right. So that sends a strong message about where we're at for, for certain things. And if you've got county after county passing it, I mean, that's a pretty clear sign that maybe something should start moving at the state level. Yeah, it definitely gives the impression that the public consciousness is changing. And even by bringing these to the table, like, you might say, someone might a knee-jerk say, like, Seth Weider-Anders, why are you bringing this to the city council? Like, why is this an issue? And just by bringing it there, he's opened up a discussion point that has been pretty interesting to see. Same thing at the county level when they brought that up. You know, Dave Lenau, the, the county supervisor, came out and it, it then created a platform in which he could share this opinion where he said, you know, I have a, multiple friends who have told me that marijuana has really helped them with medical conditions. Mm -hmm. And you have other people saying, other leaders saying that. And once they say that, everyone else on the council has to go, ah, oh, well, I respect that guy. Like, this isn't some whack job or some of these people who might say, oh, that's, these are just stoners who want this thing. It makes, it changes their impression of the issue if now one of their colleagues is saying, actually, I see this amongst my constituents and my family and my friends. So it's, um, and, and there's other ones who, who come out and say, you know, I see this with my family and it's the other way. It's bad. Like I've seen, you know, as, as David Ward said, I've seen alcoholism uh, create some real problems in my family. And he didn't specific, specifically mention marijuana, but, um, you know, they're, they're not the same thing. As a former right. bartender, I would have rather had a bar full of people high than a bar full of people really drunk. Yeah, you'd I mean, sell way more French fries. Well, <laughs> they, it's different. Like I, dealing with very high people was not nearly as hard as dealing with very drunk people. Right. Um, so it, it, it's a, they're not the same things. And sometimes we, we tie them together like that. They both need to be regulated. They both need to be taxed. They both need to be um, enforced very strictly because you, you can use them inappropriately and kids can use them inappropriately. But um, 
yeah, it, it is interesting to, it's one of the more fascinating things to watch a discussion mm-hmm. at a, at a municipal policy level right. and see like the, the, where the knowledge gap is. Well, and the, the other thing too, is like the, the difference between recreational and medical use. Um, a lot of times when you, when you talk about marijuana, you have people coming at it as uh, an illicit substance and it's bad. But then when you try to separate, like that's looking at people like we don't want a bunch of you know, druggies smoking up and getting high all over the county. But then when you separate that into a medical thing, medical marijuana makes a lot of sense for a place like Door County because of our aging population, um, because of the, you know, the, the demographics up here. Um, I think legalized medical marijuana could help a lot of people especially because like we've talked about on the podcast before, we're not in the midst of an opioid crisis in Door County, but Door County is the perfect breeding ground for something like that. Yeah, there is a little bit of it in uh, in the county. There have been issues. It's We have, in talking to Arlie Porter and, and others in county law enforcement, it's not, and they feel very lucky that it's not worse here yet with the opioid crisis right. that has struck so many other rural areas. And it, they say it, most likely it's simply because we're at isolated place where if you drive up here with it, it's just there's only two roads out. So if you are a dealer and just by virtue of trying to transport it up here, it's just not very easy to do. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how long we'll be lucky like that. Well, and, and even beyond that, there's other factors, too, like um, the the doctors that we have up here um, that overprescribing is a, a, a huge part of the opioid crisis and we're like i don't know if i would say like the doctors up here i mean we don't have any evidence to suggest that any of the doctors here are prescribing in general i would say our nation maybe is but i wouldn't i wouldn't want to cast aspersions upon any doctors here because i don't know that for a fact well what i was getting more towards is that our options for medical facilities are more limited here oh yeah so We, we don't have the counseling services that other places have we're woefully short in counselors and psychiatrists um that help um, stem your need for <laughs> for other solutions to those problems, whether it be drugs, alcohol, opioids, and so many other things. Right. So that is to say, um, we're, we're lucky to be kind of in this zone where even though we are ripe for something to happen, we're, we're, we're subsisting on, you know, levels that are, are not terrible. Yeah. Um, that is to say that introducing medical marijuana into the equation, it would be interesting to see how that affects things. Right. Um, because a lot of times you can substitute um, medical marijuana for pain medication. Yep. Um, and, and that's just one of the things that medical marijuana helps with. Yep. So, um, well, and in general, like whenever you're having these discussions, it's funny when people start talking about how bad and marijuana might be, but it's like, all right, if you're going to say that we should outlaw marijuana, you really should have a conversation about alcohol. I mean, there's, <laughs> you, it's, it's there or cigarettes or, um, or even throw into the equation when you think about like, oh, all these things can go wrong with marijuana. Take a Xanax. Take right. Zoloft, take anything. The, the, the chemicals that we are prescribed that we think are safe and we accept as safe, um, I think most people would find like, wow, that is much more powerful than taking, um, than using marijuana. <laughs> right. um, so it's, it's funny what we are kind of indoctrinated with as safe versus not safe is a really um, slippery slope. I mean, heck, you can, you can look through our history and so many of the chemicals we put on our lawns and that we spray on our farm fields uh, we almost always find out that they're really bad for us down right. the road and have killed a bunch of people with cancer. But we accept them as safe because somebody put a label on them. Right. Well, let's move on to our last little bit of news before we jump into our feature this week. Um, tell me about the mill pond in Forestville. So this is something that I've been hearing about in the office, but I actually haven't followed at all. Yeah, so the Forestville mill pond is like a, a bit of a, I think it's like a man-made reservoir where they um, they 
there's a lot of soot um, and sediment that is gathered at the bottom of this little pond. And there are a lot of homes around this pond. It's a, it's a, a beautiful little spot. Uh, people like to fish in there and um, people have their homes around it. It's nice. You have basically have your home on a lake, um, on a little inland lake in Forestville. And they have done these studies on it and found that there's a lot of nutrient loading in there from like the runoff from adjacent farm fields and agricultural runoff. And then you have this pile up uh, uh, in some places, one to two to three feet of soot on the bottom of the lake. They need to clean that out. Um, a, to keep it healthy and, um, and just to, to get some of that nutrient load out of there and, and just make the, bring the depth back to the lake. Um, it seemed like a pretty like cut and dry thing, but now it turns out the fire department down there is concerned because they get their water from the mill pond when there are um, emergencies. So what they, have, what they had proposed is that they would do a two-year drawdown of the lake to then clean out all the sediment. So it would just be a drained lake, and then you'd, have, uh, you'd go in with backhoes or whatever and, and clean out all that sediment. And now the fire department's like, well, you draw that down. This is where we get our water from. Now, they could probably find other solutions. We are surrounded by water. Right. But it's an issue for them. And the homeowners are like, hey, uh, I don't want to sit around a pile of mud for two years and stare at that. Like, there's got to be a better solution. Right. So what seemed to be like, okay, we've, we've made our call on how we're going to handle this. Now there's a petition circulating from homeowners in the Forestville area to fight against this. And it looks like it might drag out a little while. Sure. So. My solution would be five guys in a circle with uh, those pool scoops just scooping that stuff out all day i mean the reality of how a lot of these things are done isn't actually that far from that you right. know like they you know they the marina right next to us where we're talking right now in bailey's harbor the bailey's harbor marina is located right next to us they do dredging there on a regular basis most of the marinas up here have dredging on a regular basis they bring in barge and you have a backhoe off the back of it and they're just pulling sediment and and bringing the depth back to the water that was an even bigger deal about eight nine years ago when we had really low water levels like in ephraim the shoreline you weren't here at the time, but the shoreline was probably 100 yards farther out. And so all the docks, they had to dredge like basic little paths into so boats could come and go from the boat launches and marinas. Right. That was happening all over the county. Um, it's not as bad now. Obviously, we have much higher water levels. But um, so that's essentially like a, a huge industrial version of exactly what you talked about. You just scrape all that, that sediment out of the bottom. Right. So this is interesting because you have it, it's one of those things where there's a bunch of different uh, elements coming together to create this kind of political storm. So yeah. <laughs> you've got the the residents there who understandably don't want to be living near the mud and the gunk for two years while all of this construction is going on in their backyard. I mean, there's going to be machines and stuff doing this all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, right. I understand that. And as one guy said, he goes, hey, I'm in my late 70s. Yeah, and, and if this is going on for two years and you're saying it could happen again in another five or 10 years, so I have my property on this lake, what was a lake, and you know, anywhere from two to four of my remaining years on this planet might be staring at this pile of mud. You know, it is what it is. You, you buy a property, things happen. Like, right. I bought my property, somebody could build right next to me and my property is different. That's just the way it goes. Some people, people want to buy something and then have it stay that way forever. That's not just not how the world works. Right. Well, and then you have the, the fire department side of it too. I mean, it's Public a resource for then. Um, Here's my question. This might be a silly question, but where does the water go when they take it out of the pond? I think they they would drain it, and it would actually flow down into uh, the river right there. And I'm drawing a blank on the name of that river right now, but there's there's a river connected to it, and it would just flow down there. Okay, so, I was which thinking, could then end up uh, could potentially send some of those pollutants and nutrients 
into the rest of the river and cause other problems. But. Sure. Well, that's another big element. Uh, why not dig another pond right next to this one and transfer the water over into there for the mm-hmm. time being? I do believe those homeowners would be pretty upset if you <laughs> Yeah, but then they've got a, they've still got their pond. Now they got two lakes. Right. It's like Madison. Um, they so, did say one other thing that homeowners were questioning is, you know, the cause of a lot of this is the agricultural runoff. And the solution, they're, they're not really addressing that is what those homeowners say is, and they brought this up at the meeting. They said, why aren't we addressing the, the agricultural runoff and the root source of some of this nutrient loading that's happening in the pond? And Ken Fisher, that had one of the county board members, turned to them and told them to stop whining. And so wow. um, they did not take too kindly to that. So I think they're even more fired up now because they feel like they're being ignored. Right. So, so another element on top of it. So yeah. you've got small town politics, you've got uh, public safety concerns. You've got homeowners. It, I mean, this seems like the perfect storm. Things, for things something. are getting wild in Forestville. Right. And it seems like something that's going to drag on and become a bigger issue as things go on. Most likely, yes. Um, we have uh, Brett Kosmeiter, uh, our video guy, is down there today getting a drone photo of it just to kind of, so we can put that in the paper next week and give people a little better lay of the land of what we're talking about. Right. Uh, any any other takeaways from the meeting in terms of potential solutions or, or they like do, past start from? They have evaluated. That's the one thing that I, I guess if I'm on that committee, I'm a little frustrated by because they have evaluated a lot of solutions over many, many months um, in talking about this. So then to now get this petition and stuff is probably frustrating, but I don't. I'm not well-versed enough to see if the, maybe behind the scenes people have been voicing in the past. Oftentimes they do, and then they go unheard. But yeah, so we'll, we'll be following that in the weeks to come. I think that that's going to do it for our news this week, but we do have something really interesting to talk about in the feature. Uh, we kind of talked about it in the Granary episode, but we're finally going to kind of dig into the the whole issue surrounding the West Waterfront, and specifically, the, there's been a new development in the High Watermark case. So let's take a break, and when we come back, that'll be our feature. They call themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork. Anything you imagine, they did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Mackinac Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Okay, we are back. Uh, Miles, so the, the West Waterfront, the high watermark. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources finally issued a final, final ruling on the location of the ordinary high watermark on the West Waterfront. Okay, start, start from the beginning with this, because this is another thing that I've been hearing about for a long time, but never actually had the full context for. So eons and eons ago, there was an explosion in the universe. Right, <laughs> okay, so let's move maybe 10 years past that. <laughs> um, Okay, so there was a hotel proposed on the West Waterfront back in 2015, I believe that first came forward. And it was immediately labeled by many as the Big Dumb Hotel. 
um, because it was a big hotel on property that was then had previously been slated for like kind of minimal boutique hotel development. Um, and that stoked the ire of many in the city who campaigned to stop that hotel from being built. And eventually they kind of stumbled on the fact that that hotel's proposed location was possibly below the ordinary high water mark. And if a property is below the ordinary high water mark, then it falls into the public trust, which basically makes it undevelopable for private purposes. Um, it can still be used for maritime development and purposes, but like um, it can't then be used for like a private hotel or sh- store or restaurant in the same way. So they found out that there's there's an old um, that the, the the ordinary high water mark, as defined in some maps from think 1835 at the time set the ordinary high water mark was was much farther back maybe like a couple hundred feet from the the present shoreline and that most of that was filled lake bed so back in the day they would it was very common um in cities and towns all over the country it's like all right we got this waterfront uh i want more waterfront i want to put a dock out here or i want to put a building to handle goods or a mill to hand to handle um grain um out farther so my ships can get to it so you would just fill it with a bunch of dirt and just literally fill the water. Uh, most of Chicago's lakefront is filled lake bed. And now it's all park because it's in the public trust. Um, and that is the case in Sturgeon Bay as well. A lot of that property is filled lake bed. And once they found that out, they filed a, the Friends of Sturgeon Bay Public Waterfront filed a lawsuit to stop the hotel development and um, redetermine that ordinary high water mark. And the funny thing is, there's actually, I believe it's still there. I think there is a um, a sign, like a, a public display sign put in there by the city of Sturgeon Bay on the walkway along the shore that actually shows where the ordinary high water mark was originally. And yet they were fighting this. Like it, it's a public map just sitting on a sidewalk. Um, right. And so where the city itself says that the ordinary high water mark was actually way back there. Um, there was a, many, many suits and countersuits on this. Um, eventually back in February of last year, the DNR issued a ruling that put that made for a really odd ordinary high watermark line that would have allowed for still some development up there, but push it back further. Uh, that watermark actually would have put the granary below the ordinary high watermark, the old granary site. Um, but then the Friends Group uh, appealed that ruling, uh, basically saying that you you kind of overlaid your maps wrong. And the DNR came back now and said, "You're correct. We overlaid our maps wrong. And since it's a it's a factual error." Um, we've redetermined it and we've set it for the 1835 mark. I believe there's probably a little political action going on here now that they, now that Sturgeon Bay settled the lawsuit with, um, Papke and the, the hotel developer. Right. Now I think the DNR is like, okay, now we'll just label this because we're not stopping a development and we don't have to fight that battle anymore. Um, so this is fine. So the city and the friends group, um, compromised on this and, and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to set it here and be done with it. So that part of the discussion um, of the lawsuit is should now be done. So Sturgeon Bay has cleared out the Papke lawsuit and the Friends lawsuit with these two decisions over the last couple of weeks. Right. And, and these are things that have been a long time coming. I mean, these are when when was the hotel first proposed? I think it was 2015 might have been. I believe Papke was approached by the city of Sturgeon Bay in 2014 to build. He was kind of recruited to build a hotel. And I think it was first discussed, I think it was 2015, but it might have been the end of 2014. Right. So, I mean, these are things that have been going on for years for, and yeah. are like almost in one fell swoop being kind of wrapped up. Yep. Um, now, they would not be, I don't think, if if the council hadn't flipped last April, I think both of these would still be ongoing. Right. 
Um, what this means for the West Waterfront then is it puts the, it really narrows down the portion of that property that is developable land. And for those unfamiliar, we're talking about the property kind of squeezed in between the bridge and the Door County Maritime Museum right? and the Greystone Castle um, to the other side. Mm-hmm. So, and then I, I think if I'm looking at that map right, it's probably like two thirds of that land now is not developable for private purposes. Okay. So you could still do something kind of behind the Greystone Castle. There'd still be room to potentially put some sort of small hotel or some sort of any sort of private building, whatever the city and the waterfront committee determines they want to do with that. Um, What they're then left with then is the land toward the water beyond that line is now, it can only be done for like public improvements and maritime purposes. So uh, it's going to be interesting that some might say it paves the way to move the granary back because they could probably argue that the granary foundation is still there and you'd just be plopping it right back on there or right. something. But well, that was my question. I mean, what does this mean for the fate of the granary? Is is there still a way to incorporate the granary into some sort of public option? Or? I, think, I think there would be. Um, and I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean the granary is that anything's happening with it, but it does make it easier to argue for moving it back there because it's easier to put that old iconic feature there and make that a public um, warming house or museum or, or something. And especially since it was, it was there for 100 years. Um, but it doesn't mean that the Waterfront Committee, I mean, that, that ad hoc committee might still go, just go, you know, we want a clean slate. We don't want anything to do with this controversy. We just want to make it a public park and use a different plan. And let's not remind people of this fight all the time. That right. might be the way they go. Um, well, and the, the West Waterfront property... Um, you you kind of laid it out on the map, but what I find so striking about it is if you go on the bridge and you look towards the Maritime Museum, you can see all of the tugs lined up. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really great photo opportunity because they're all kind of there. Uh, if you've got a zoom lens on, you can get real close and then the whole, like it, it, it looks like this incredible maritime complex all right there because you've got tugs stacked one on the, one on the other mm-hmm. and all of that cool uh, machinery all in that zone. But as long as I've been up here, it's been where the granary stood, and the granary is not a beautiful building. And then the dirt piles were there too. So it was just kind of this like dumpy zone right up next to one of the coolest parts of the city for me, which is all of the tugboats lined up together. So this is really cool looking forward to see that that property specifically is going to be something more uh public and something that people are going to be able to take advantage of in terms of getting those great uh, iconic shots of Sturgeon Bay. Yeah, I mean, if I could wave a wand over Sturgeon Bay now, and they, they have this opportunity, and, you know, if they had, I don't know that they have a mayor capable of doing this right now, but if they did have a mayor who could bring people together and was willing to, you know, swallow a little bit of pride and just, just go, okay, how do we move forward from this? I'm not going to get exactly what I want. You're not going to get exactly what you want. How do we move forward? I would get the Maritime Museum board together. I would get the the Historical Society people. I would get maybe even bring Papke to the table, even if he's not wanting to build a hotel, like just to um, get his input on how it all went down and get the council together, put them in a room and maybe pull the Greystone Castle guys in there too. put them in a room together and say, how do we make the coolest thing we can possibly do on this corner of the city and, and take this trash pile that we've had for the last four years of of civic mess and now you know we did all this fighting we might as well come out with something good so let's uh you know maritime museum what what do we need to do to finish your fundraising for your tower let's get that done and granary folks what's the best use of this granary uh it's clear that this fight isn't going away so let's just 
come up with the best thing out of it. Um, and now we have this public domain in front of this. What's the coolest thing we can put there? Maybe it's an ice skating rink. Maybe it's um, a fountain. Maybe I don't know what that might be. Maybe it's a big pier where boats can come and dock. There's tons of options. And what I do is I'd say, if anyone wants to be a stubborn jerk about this, you're kicked out. But everyone's got to like have an open mind and recognize you're not getting just your way and let's figure it out. Right. Um, and I think that probably should have been done four or five years ago. And unfortunately, they just let the animosities build up and the, and the walls get deeper and deeper and deeper in, in, in their foundations. But, you know, if anyone in Surgeon Bay is listening, please do that because I don't want to keep writing these same things. Right. Um, well, and it, it's, a cool, it's a cool opportunity because Door County has been changing a lot, like in the last five years, 10 years. And, and part of that, that uh, progressive change has kind of been tainted in Sturgeon Bay because of all of these, you know, civic dark clouds that have been hanging over the town. And I guess I would be the optimist to say that now that these things are being cleaned up, maybe this is the next step for Sturgeon Bay in terms of uh, new things coming in in Sturgeon Bay. Um, maybe not reinventing itself, but, but introducing uh, a new feel to the town. Um, they, they're, they're in a, a position where they have, you know, Yonkers is vacant and that's a big, big building that's vacant right in the middle of town. Uh, and then they've had this waterfront property, which has just been a mess for years. Now that all these things are still, are slowly starting to, to clean up, there's a lot of opportunity for Sturgeon Bay to do some really cool stuff in that area. Oh, yeah. And you can make this whole corridor over there because you get, you'd have this public waterfront, you'd have the Maritime Museum, which is an awesome museum. Um, Anybody who hasn't been in there should go in there, and if you're lucky, get a tour from Tim Girl. That guy is awesome. Um, and then maybe you'd have the granary there and whatever that becomes, and whether it's just a cool way to tell the story of the history of that area or if it becomes a warming house or a visitor center or whatever it might happen. And then whatever else you can do from a public amenity standpoint. Look at Sister Bay. Just like It's just open space, and it has turned that town completely around. Um, and you've seen that in city across and city after city across America. So like there's really big potential there. And then you have Potawatomi State Park, which the city really doesn't take advantage of in like tying it into the city. But all you'd have to do is you, you make this corridor, you put in cool signage, you put um, marked bike paths or something and connect that waterfront and the downtown to Potawatomi State Park, which is an incredible park and start weaving all these pieces together. And you kind of change what the perception of Sturgeon Bay might be. If you then again, maybe maybe people don't want that. Right. Well, that's the other side of it. I mean, we can sit up here in Bailey's Harbor and speculate on how cool Sturgeon would be. But I mean, that's that's not the reality for everybody that's living there. It might not be the reality for everybody that's that's living there. Um, but all that is to say, we're approaching kind of a clean slate situation where we can, you know, start to look forward to new and interesting things popping up. And there are people who want to invest down there. You see what Ryan Castellans has done on the, the west side, um, the Bay Loss, Bayshore Outfitters. Um, Maritime Museum embarking on this huge fundraising issue, Crate Restaurant, the Cherry Lanes. There's a lot of good things starting and fermenting down there. A couple more, and you've got this this bulk, and that could really change what you are. Right. Look at Sister Bay. It took, you know, a, one restaurant opening to create sort of a, you know, I would say like wild tomato opening, and that sort of opened the door for other people saying, I want to invest. And then, and not just new places, but old places said, you know what? They're up the ante. I'm going to up the ante. And Husby's is doing this and Stabur is doing this and the boathouse. And people started investing a ton of money in that town. And it, it just snowballed on each other after that uh, public investment in the waterfront. And if I'm Sturgeon Bay, I'd probably look to that as a model or I'd look to Traverse City as a model. Right. And, and, and I would say that, that regardless of what happens, the opportunity for something cool to happen is, is a good thing. Yes. So 
any other final takeaways on the high watermark or the west waterfront property? Is there anything still that needs to be kind of dealt with? Um, I just hope you never have to ask me to explain the ordinary high water marking. Okay. Well, we had to do it at some point. Uh, we talked about how we were going to spend some time on it in the granary in the granary episode. Uh, it, I think it's just it's cool that it turned around so quickly. I mean, I was expecting this to drag on through 2019, but um, to to have this thing that I've heard about for years finally just come to a resolution so soon after the the Papke lawsuit. It's really cool to see that kind of forward yeah. momentum starting up. Yep. Cool. Well, I think that that's just about going to do it for us this week. Miles, thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Of course. Thanks, Andrew. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.